Okay, this is episode three of the Third Fridays podcast. I'm your host, Christian Cison, and I welcome you to the only non-holiday, non-snow day in which no hearings are scheduled before the New York Workers' Compensation Board. Today, my agenda is tailored to the defend from day one strategy. But first, let's do some housekeeping. Our first episode two months ago talked about opioids and the procedural requirements to litigate that issue. This month, eight board panel decisions directed the use of weaning programs. So we're starting to see this picture starting to form in a good direction, right? We want to make sure that they're not just writing scripts for the same dosage, for the same amount of time, for the life of the claim. It's good that the board's acting here, and uh, it's helpful to our side. Okay, back to today. I'm going to introduce my guest this month, Tim Kane. Now, there's so many fun facts about this guy, so I'm not sure where to begin um, let's see. Well, he recently moved to my hometown, so we can confirm that his children will have a first-rate public school education, uh, and that he'll never have to travel far for an A-plus sandwich. Uh, Tim's office is right next to mine, so we have certainly tangled in some Nerf gun wars. Uh, by the way, th- those are on pause right now. Uh, put, put the Nerf gun away, okay, Tim? <laughs> um, but I guess the reason why I'm thrilled that Tim could appear on the show is that he is a former claimant's attorney. Boo. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show, Tim. Thank you for having me. So that brings us to today's issue. The mantra that I profess to our clients is hashtag defend from day one. I say it so much that maybe I should start getting some T-shirts or uh, bumper stickers. But to help with that process, I wanted to get inside a claimant's head and find out what his or her attorney is doing from day one. So just for today, Tim, go back to representing claimants. Don't dress as nice as you you are today. Uh, What are the first thoughts in your head when a claimant calls you to allege an ouchie that happened at work? Okay. Well, um, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. And, um, yeah, the first thoughts that go through your head are, um, you know, I don't want to make it all about money, but you know, if you, you, you wonder whether this person has an injury that uh, will move any money. That's one thought that goes through an attorney's head. Let's, for example, if it's a lower back strain and there's no lost time, there's a good chance that person may walk away unrepresented. Uh, it's kind of a mercenary way of looking at it, but that's one thing that you definitely think about when you, when you ask a person about their claim. Um, but I guess even before that, when you sit them down, you try to make them comfortable, try to be friendly. Um, you don't want them to think that they're uh, you know, just a paycheck, um, and certainly you want them to be comfortable with you so they can tell you as much as possible about the claim. But once they allege to you that they had a work-related accident, as long as it's something that falls in the very broad range of types of compensable injuries that you might see in compensation, um, the inquiry doesn't go too much further than that. Uh, much like there's a presumption in the workers' compensation law uh, that the claimant is credible, most claimants' attorneys will presume that this person is telling the truth and that they're being credible. Uh, Certainly, a claimant's attorney doesn't conduct the type of investigation that we would conduct or that uh, an insurance carrier or self-insured employer or or an employer would conduct uh, where they talk to the person's supervisor. You don't, as the claimant's attorney, you don't go talk to the person's supervisor. Uh, And there can be pros and cons to that. Um, Although you do presume that this is a compensable injury that this person is telling you about, uh, sometimes you find out things at trial and you're hearing them for the first time. And you know that the attorney on the other side 
has had this information um, in their pocket leading up to trial because their side did do an investigation. So I think that's one of the best things that uh, we have available to us uh, on the carrier side is we have it. We, we do speak to the person's employer. We do speak to their supervisor. We do have information that may be relevant to this situation aside from, you know, whether or not this person actually got hurt. Um, and it could be a wide range of things. I'm sure you've seen uh, cases where the investigation tells you that, uh, there's some information here that, that is relevant to this case, um, you know, whether or not the injury happened at all or whether there's any other kind of mitigating circumstances. So, Well, that's, that's kind of important. So uh, let, let's, let's go back a little bit. You mentioned uh, the presumption and the broad range of cases that would enable an established case to uh, be put before a judge. But I think what was interesting was you said that when a claimant – alleges a work accident, the claimant's attorney will essentially agree that one has occurred, whether that's for monetary purposes or not. Uh, it kind of mirrors the law in that a presumption will apply to establish a case, especially if it's an unwitnessed accident, for example. Um, so I think that's important to know from our point of view. Uh, like you said, uh, you know, we do those investigations uh, we have to do them from the outset, right? Because if one side is staunch in their belief that they're going to present a viable claim, we can't be reacting to that, right? We have to be proactive and make sure that we have our defenses in place, offers of proof, things like that to make sure that, you know, if possible, maybe we get a case thrown out at the pre-hearing conference stage, right? Uh, if possible, that's ideal, it uh, doesn't always happen, of course, but yeah, sure. Okay, um, yeah, I, I, I get that. I get that throwing a case out of the pre-hearing conference stage is very rare. But you know, uh, you know, we just spoke uh, this afternoon about uh, you know idiopathic injuries and and things that don't even have a causal relationship aspect, uh, whether it be on the records or even if it is, uh, I think it's important to put that on the record from the outset that, Hey, you know, we're not just going to sit back and, and, and take PFME to be PFME. It's important to note those things from the outset. And it, I think it helps the attorney throughout the end of the claim, even if the claim gets established, you know, once you uh, know everything about the claim from the outset, you're in a better position to litigate even the minor issues going down the road. Yeah. And you know, there are other more technical defenses that you might encounter, for example, I mean, sometimes for better, or for worse, these people don't even know who their actual employer is. Um, and sometimes you have, uh, sophisticated, uh, arrangements, uh, employment arrangements where there could be uh, a management company. They might set up additional corporations for different purposes. Uh, the person's paycheck may say one thing and, and, uh, the employer may have a different opinion as to who the employer is. So it's important to know those things, but as a claimant side attorney, you know, the claimant says, this was my employer, and you pretty much run with it. So you might show up as a claimant's attorney at a pre-hearing conference and get a lot of information from the carrier's attorney about other parties that need to be on notice and things like that, um, that you, net, you generally won't get from the claimant, or often enough, you will not get from the claimant. That's a good point, Tim, because, you know, sometimes we can produce information that helps them out for their case, but not necessarily involve us. Right, because as long as we get discharged and removed from notice from a sticky situation like that, then that's that's fine for our clients too. Um, so, but going along those lines, 
you know, have you ever had a, a situation where you're, you're telling a claimant, you know, to, to kind of produce more information or, or, you know, like maybe, maybe you're asking them for pay stubs or, or, um, uh, any kind of agreements or contracts that they sign with the employer to kind of perfect or make this claim more legit? Yeah, that happens a lot. And to a large extent, it's in the claimant's hands to, to move a cl- claim along at those initial stages. Um, for example, producing PFME. Someone might come in because this was the same lawyer that represented uh, their, their brother or their friend or their coworker, and they'll show up and say, hey, I got hurt at work but they haven't seen a doctor yet. They don't have a medical report yet. So that's the big one, right? You need a medical, you can still file the C3, you can fill it out, but you know the claim's not going to go anywhere until they have a medical report. Uh, same thing, if if the C240, if they say it doesn't look correct, then you know you need them to go get the W2 or you need them to get pay stubs, things like that. If there's concurrent employment, you always ask that at the intake interview. Um, and if they say yes, then you immediately say, okay, well, bring me those pay stubs. Um, it's actually, it's surprising... <laughs> how often people will walk in uh, and, and give you information or have questions, but they don't have the documentary evidence. And you have to tell them, hey, go home and grab that, come back, and we'll figure it out and we'll move forward. And that's important to know too because if if their their side is essentially doing something to move the claim along, we can't be sitting on it and just waiting for, for them to do that, right? It's it, We got to take advantage of that time where they're not getting a pre-hearing conference yet because they don't have the medicals, where they're looking for information to verify who their employer is. We need to be making sure that uh, we're not reacting to, okay, uh, SROYO 4 plus medical equals pre-hearing conference in 30 days. I, I, I hate having that situation where we have to kind of backpedal. We always make it work, right? But just just to say that, you know, we could react to those things all the time doesn't present the best argument uh, in most cases because we're given a limited time frame by the expedited hearing calendar as is. So uh, I do agree that, uh, you know, oftentimes a claimant will not present a lot of documentary evidence. And I think that's important to know on our side because we need to make sure that we're not just waiting for that, right? You know, sometimes we might not get a referral or, or a case handed to us until that stage has happened, but it's important to take advantage of that time period where there is a lull because we can uh, perfect our defense as best po- as possible. Another interesting thing that uh, you see is, you know, as a claimant side attorney, you really want to draw out from the claimant every bodily site that might be involved in the <laughs> right. claim. You want to get right. that on the C3. Build that permanent total case from day one, right? Right. No, I mean, because you don't want to be in a situation where the person says, oh, I also hurt, uh, you know, they, they, they hurt their, their, their back. And then um, two months later, they say, oh, I also hurt my left leg. And it's not on the C3. It's just a lot easier from the claimant side perspective if you have all of those things on the C3 from the outset, if you're going to be alleging causally related injury. So, you know, a lot of the these interviews involve... Like I said, making the person feel comfortable and then just repeating the question, drawing out as much as you can. Uh, same thing with, with pre-existing injuries or, or prior claims. You want to make sure you know that information because as a claimant side attorney, you don't want your client to be dinged with a fraud claim. You don't want a site to be disallowed if it should be in the claim. And of course, on, our, on the carrier side, um, you know these are arguments that we make. We, we look at someone who denied prior treatment or we look at someone who raises a site um, 
much further down the road, and we, we try to take the position to the judge that these things should not be allowed or that these things should uh, you know, be considered uh, in the context of the claim and, and whether the claim was forthcoming from the outset. That's great. That's great. Uh, I, I totally agree with that uh, because it only helps our clients to act aggressively from the outset, right? Because it serves a, a, a good purpose in, in two ways, right? When when you guys are doing an investigation and then knowing that leads us to do a better investigation, it helps us by knowing that we should be aggressively denying the cases that are truly, truly like wrong and should not be brought before the board. And it also may help us to understand, hey, a case that we may deny actually looks like it's on the road to being established. We can actually cut costs and move towards closure by withdrawing a denial and accepting a case from the out- outset in, instead of going through the whole charade of denying it and having it later established and then affirmed on appeal, which may take too long when the case could have been closed earlier. Right. I think it's in everyone's best interest for the claimant's attorney to do as good of a job as possible, filling out that C3, uh, you know, giving the HIPAA release if it's appropriate, things like that. It makes everyone's life Tim, a lot the easier. the HIPAA release is always appropriate, right? <laughs> That's what we've taught you. Mm, well, you know, claimants' attorneys do not like fishing expeditions, as they say. But when it's appropriate, certainly you can learn a lot from that, those prior treatment records. And, you know, we ask for them, but you don't always get them. But if there is a, a prior claim or something like that or, or if something a, a hit on an ISO search – you can certainly ask the judge for the HIPAA to uh, for the claimant to sign the HIPAA release. Of course, of course. All right, uh, we're going to move to the next part of the show. It's called Guess the Outcome. Tim, you're going to get five facts, and you're going to have to predict how the issue was adjudicated. Oh boy! Yeah, you're following Declan Tashia, and they both guessed it right. Uh-oh. So, uh oh. So I kind of hope you're the first one to not get it right, mm. but you know, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, we have a board panel decision that just came out on February seventh. Are you ready to play? I'm ready, I hope. Okay. Fact one. The relevant issue is whether the defense presented enough evidence to overcome the Section 21 presumption of an unwitnessed accident. Okay? Okay. Um, Fact two. The claimant worked 9 to 5 during his job and alleged that an accident had occurred at 2.30 p.m., after which he notified the owner of the company and his direct supervisor on that same day. Fact number three. The employer's statement indicated that the claimant was actually reprimanded for non-performance of job duties on the date of the alleged accident and that the claimant left the job without making the notice that he said he did. Okay. Fact four. We're at trial now. The claimant testifies that he was supposed to begin working on the date in question at 9 a.m., but because of a snowstorm, he was unable to complete the job. Fact five. The owner of the company testified that the claimant didn't show up for work until 3 or 4 p.m. to receive his paycheck and then go home. Okay. This is a little bit tougher than the other two questions I've posed because <laughs> we, it's a fact-based scenario, right? You're going to talk about credibility that you know neither of us can glean from a written decision, right? But just using those fa- five facts, how do you think a law judge would rule based on – the credibility of each witness is just on the facts themselves. Well, I will say that that is not an easy uh, answer to give. I, I feel like you're right. A lot of it would depend on the credibility of the claimant in testimony uh, as well as the employer witness in testimony. So I guess the question, if I can just try to clarify here, is uh, whether the guy actually even worked at all that day 
That's what it kind of sounds like. So you're trying to get a sixth fact, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, that's what it, I, the, it seems like. That's what you were sort of hinting at. It, the the let's see here. So you said that he said it happened about two thirty, but the employer is saying that he didn't show up till three, and he just picked up his check and went home. Right. Well, if if the employer witness was credible, and furthermore, if there was um, you know any kind of documentary evidence, or, or you know, I guess you said there was a snowstorm, so I guess you can look at the uh, meteorological data or the <laughs> prior weather reports and confirm whether that actually happened. It's actually interesting because yeah. the date in question is March 4th. You know, not too many snowstorms uh, in mm. March, uh, but you know, claimants will say anything. Well, it should be provable whether there was a storm that day or not. Um, but it, to me, it, <laughs> maybe I'm biased uh, as a, a carrier um, attorney, but I, I think that there's uh, sufficient ev- evidence based on what you just told me to disallow the claim. And we have three for three? <laughs> three for three? I, I, I think All people right. are going to start thinking I'm feeding answers to, but I, I actually want my guest to get it wrong. Uh, yes, this cl- claim was disallowed, um, and I do acknowledge that it was. It, this one's definitely hard. You might have to kind of just go with uh, your gut on this one, but essentially for Section 21, uh, the presumption to be put forth, right, the carrier or the employer still has an opportunity to rebut that presumption, present credible evidence, right? So if the guy says that he's working at 2.30, but we present evidence that there was contact at 9 a.m. from him saying that he's not even going to work and then coming to work at 3 p.m., right? That's that's a lot of information to rebut the presumption that an unwitnessed accident occurred. If you're not actually on the job, then you can't – theoretically sustain a work-related injury, right? Seemingly, although on those same facts, at least what I, you know, what you were uh, able to say here in this, this brief context, you know, it's possible for something like that to be established. Uh, that presumption can be pretty powerful sometimes, and you may get a result that you're really not happy with. But um, certainly in this case, it sounds like they were able to prove that the presumption should not apply. And uh, that's definitely possible too. Uh, if you if you do a proper investigation, like we were discussing earlier, and if you have your your ducks in a row, as they say, and you have good witnesses, um, you can certainly overcome the presumption. Uh, it's not a uh, you know, uh, it's not uh, what's the word I'm looking for here. You know, it's definitely possible to overcome. It's, it's, it's not a guarantee, right? right. The, the claimant doesn't have any have a guarantee of, of getting their claim established. Yeah, you know, we both know how difficult it is to get a claim disallowed in any event, right? Uh, but I, what I love about this case is it seems like that Section 21 presumption was the only thing at issue here. Like it didn't seem like any of the other defenses that uh, an employer or carrier could use to deny the claim uh, really had enough muster. Uh, so it kind of pushed uh, the defense to really investigate the timeline here, right? Because if if a claimant says that he got a work accident at 2.30 on March 4th, right, can we figure out how it could have been possible that he did or that he didn't sustain this accident? And you can't do that just by knowing the law, and you can't do that by uh, making a plea for the interest of justice. You actually have to get into the nuts and bolts, talk to all the people, and make sure that you can build that kind of timeline. Now, Based on that, it looks like the defense here had an almost perfect defend from day one process here. You know, I, w- I would have preferred to get that other direct supervisor because sometimes we have a situation where the judge says, yeah, maybe you didn't get the notice, but the defense didn't produce 
the other person who could have gotten noticed, and therefore I'm going to attribute credibility to that like issue aside from whether person A got noticed. You know what I mean? And, and I think that uh, if as, as soon as the claimant uh, alleges that notices are provided to A and B, I need those two people in there in court to say that they didn't get noticed timely, right? Right. Any controverted claim, um, doing a proper investigation – Having the proper parties, um, you know, in the the, the the judge's decision at the pre-hearing conference, that you're going to bring the right people to the actual trial, and, I, and even developing a rapport with those witnesses, and making sure that they know that you're on the same side, you're on the same team, and that you're going to um, be professional and do your best to uh, get the right outcome. Uh, developing that rapport can be very important um, because most people haven't testified in this kind of proceeding before, and you want them to be comfortable with what they're doing. You want them to know that, you know, you're on their side at the hearing. Um, and so uh, it's always good to to do that good investigation, but also to d- get to know the people a little bit and make sure they're going to show up, <laughs> right? And, and, right? And make sure you know the answers to the questions you're going to be asking, that kind of thing. Right. I, I'm re- actually really glad that you brought that up. I wasn't even thinking about that because – Going back to when you first started talking, you said that you wanted to make the claimant comfortable when he comes into your office, he or she. Um, but it's just the same for the employer's witnesses too. And, and how often do we see our defense colleagues that shall remain nameless call out for their witnesses on the day of the trial where they are just meeting them for the first time, trying to go over the facts of the case in as quick of a manner as possible before going before a judge they don't know what they're doing. They don't know – it's their first time being at the board. Uh, they don't remember all the facts. Our job here is to talk to them beforehand, sometimes even meet them if they're at a location that's uh, viable for both of us so that the rapport can be built, right? So it's not just I'm coming here to do something for, for the employer and because or because my employer directed me to or told me that I had to appear at this trial. Like there's an alternate reason because you build that rapport and gives you an opportunity to create a sense of common purpose with with a witness. Right. And I feel like if it's a a good defense, if there's a, a strong reason to be def- to to be denying the claim, a lot of time those witnesses aside from their employer telling them to show up, they're going to want to come and they want the truth to be to be aired out. They they want they they have facts and information that's important to a, a proper um outcome of the claim. Um but you know, certainly you want to get to know them ahead of time and then uh you, know, you may sit down for 15, 20 minutes before the, the trial and review everything, but that certainly shouldn't be your first time doing so. All right. Great. Tim, thanks for being my guest today. Uh, I have no parting gifts for you. So oh, ask. well, it's been my pleasure. All right. You know, I, I do want to ask, though, I guess with those types of situations that come up where a claimant loses a trial, you know, how quickly are you writing that appeal or in your in your head, right? Well, certainly you know on your calendar what the deadline is, um, but the sooner you file it, um, the sooner the person stops asking, is it filed yet? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, You know, you, you get that on both ends, I guess. So it's not really common to your, your former identity as a claimant's attorney. Um, until next time, everybody, this is the Third Fridays podcast with Christian Cisan reminding you to defend from day one.